Hello all, my name is Masha Pearl, Executive Director of the Blue Card, the only organization in the United States with the sole mission of assisting Holocaust survivors. Welcome to the latest episode of Stories of the Holocaust, Overcoming Historical Trauma, where we spotlight Holocaust survivors who have led miraculous lives despite massive communal traumas. Today, we are joined by Dr. Edith Egger and her daughter, Audrey Egger Thompson. Dr. Edith Egger was born in Hungary and was the youngest of three daughters in a close-knit Jewish family. Before the German invasion, she was a member of the Hungarian Olympic gymnastic team. Her sister Clara was an accomplished musician. Dr. Egger will share with us her miraculous story of near-death experiences in Auschwitz and a death march. In her own survival and healing, she has done many academic studies of psychology and has influenced theories on choice and has helped thousands of military personnel and other traumatized patients. She has received many honors and awards from dignitaries such as Queen of Holland, professional as well as corporate institutions. Dr. Edith Egger's book, The Choice, is a New York Times bestseller and its sequel, The Gift, 12 Lessons to Save Your Life are a must read for professionals as well as general audiences. After reading the book, people such as Oprah have said, I will be forever changed by Edith Egger's story. Audrey will discuss how growing up with Holocaust survivor parents has impacted her personal and professional life. It is an honor to have both of you here with us today. Dr. Eva Fogelman, our moderator for the series, will begin the discussion. Welcome, uh, Dr. Edith Egger and uh, Audrey. Uh, we are very, very pleased to have you with us today. And uh, Edith, if it's okay to call you Edith, um, I know that you are an individual who lives in the present. And as a Holocaust survivor, I think that's one of the things that certainly has helped you overcome the trauma uh, that you uh, that you experienced. But I hope it's okay for today's discussion. I'm going to be taking you back to the past, and then uh, and then we will get to the present, both with you and uh, with your daughter uh, Audrey. So I'd like to begin if you can uh, tell me a little bit about. Uh, your mother and father, uh, a little bit about their background. My mother married my father, but my father told me, because I became his confidant, that uh, she married down. In Europe, you either marry up or you marry down, that she only married that tailor. But the tailor became uh, a wonderful, wonderful designer and told me that I'm going to be the best dressed girl in town when I grow up. So Papa, please, please watch me. I am wearing an Escada's uh, clothes and, and I know that you would be satisfied. I miss you. I wish you were here. And I know you died in Auschwitz after we arrived and mom as well. So I, uh, I'm here to tell you that I never forget what happened. I don't even know what it means to overcome. 
but I know that I came to terms with it. Before we start with, with how you overcame, maybe you could tell us a little bit of what it was like for you to, um, uh, to grow up uh, before the Germans invaded. You had a whole life. You were 16 when they invaded. So you had a whole life. Well, after two girls, my parents really wanted a son. Um, Magda was playing the piano. Clary was a child prodigy. She played the Mendelssohn violin concerto at a very, very young age, like six. And so they really wanted a son. And I came along. I think I became the runt, the disappointment. I was very shy, painfully shy. And I spent a lot of time alone, which actually helped me when I was in Auschwitz. Because if you were depending on other people to take care of you, that wasn't there. So I think I had a childhood where I learned how to be alone and how to find the answers from within. And that was very useful. I was a very very um, learned child because my mother told me uh, one day, you know, I'm so glad you have brains because you have no looks. And I think that was very helpful because I became very erudite and I became Dr. Edith Eva Eager and learned and studied and had my own book club. I had a boyfriend and we were very, very, very Zionistic. We were going to go to Palestine and we were going to fight. And uh, uh, we were part of the Batar. I remember meetings that we attended. My boyfriend, unfortunately, was killed the day before liberation. But he told me I have beautiful eyes and beautiful hands. And I would go to everyone every day. Tell me about my eyes, because if I survive today, then tomorrow, tomorrow was very important. And tomorrow I'm going to be free and I'm going to see Imre. That would be one of the things that certainly helped you overcome uh, the, uh, the nightmare that you had to live through after the Germans invaded. How did you get into, uh, you were a ballet dancer and then you got into the, into gymnastics. How how did that happen? Well, I was putting the two together. Uh, uh, my ballet master was wonderful because he helped me one day and said, um, your ecstasy has to come from within. But I didn't know that word, ecstasy, what it means. When I was in Auschwitz, I remembered that word. Um, and what it meant. He told me that, uh, that it is important for me to develop my inner resources. And that's what my mother told me in the cattle car. She held me and I say that every school that I go to, that my mother told me, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put here in your own mind. That's the First thing that I tell children when I go to school, stay in school, please don't smoke pot. I do a little preaching too because 
I can afford it. You know, I'm 94 years old. I can say anything I want. You mentioned that you were Zionist. How was your family Jewish? How did your family observe their Yiddishkeit in, uh, before the war? My, my mother was kosher, and uh, you should have seen her making a holler Friday. It was an art piece. I mean, it was just a magnificent way that she did everything by hand. Uh, she just bought the flowers and the eggs, and she made all the pasta. She did the challah. She made the chicken soup, and we had a goose, and she fed the goose every night with corn, so we would have a big uh, pate goose. goose oh, how beautiful. Uh, yeah, my mom was a, a, a modern cook as well. I, I remember making, uh, my mother making French food, and uh, I, I learned never throw out even a piece of bread, even today. I eat everything. Did you have a favorite dish? Did you have a favorite dish that she liked? Chicken. Uh, chicken, uh, fried chicken. Fried chicken, you dip it in flour, you dip it in eggs, and then you dip it in breadcrumbs and put it in a refrigerator so it would stick well and, and fry it. And chicken popcorn. Now, what happened? <laughs> What happened when the Germans uh, invaded uh, your area of Holland? Of, uh, uh, Hungary joined Hitler in March, and we had a Passover dinner, and my father got up and kissed us over the head and told us to go to sleep. And an hour later was banging on the door, and they took us to to out of the city where they gathered the Jewish yeah. people. And then we ended up in a carol car. And the next thing I knew, our wife marked fry. And I never heard of Auschwitz. I never knew that existed. I remember asking myself, does anyone know that I'm here? I felt so alone. I felt so thrown out as if I had done something wrong. Uh, it was it was a total uh, surprise, unexpected, unanticipated, and all we had was each other then. And of course, all we have is each other now. So cooperation, not competition, not domination. We had to really learn to transcend our needs and commit ourselves to someone other than that now, was very important. So you were um, you were deported to Auschwitz with your mother and your father and your sister Clara I, and your sister um, Magda. Um, Magda. Your sister Magda. Sorry, yeah, you. I'm going to repeat that. You were uh, deported. Auschwitz with your mother and your father and your sister Magda. What, where, where did Clara disappear to? So Clara was already in the camp when her Christian professor, Mr. Bauer, 
put on some kind of a uniform and smuggled her out. And when I arrived from Vienna to Prague, I saw advertisements, Clara giving a concert, and I knew she was alive. And she was waiting for us, and she decided that she's going to be my mother. So even when I went to the um, agent at the airport, she would push me aside, and she said, that's my little one. And she <laughs> took over for me because she decided. Yeah. So let's go, back for, let's go back for a minute to... Uh, being on the uh, being on the train to uh, Auschwitz and not knowing where where you're going and and what happened when um, when you got there. This is what I remember, as I told you. My mother told me we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put here in your own mind. This is what I tell the children in school. Stay in school, pick up as many pieces of paper as you can, because more doors are going to open up for you. So I'm a big seller of uh, staying in school and stop smoking pot and so on. I, uh, I preach and somehow I think children want to hear what is the right thing to do. So I do that. I'm very active as much as I can. I tell children that they are the ambassadors for peace and goodwill. I call them ambassador. You never treat a person as they are. You treat them as if they were what they're capable of becoming. Uh, let's go back a minute to when you got off the train uh, at, uh, at Auschwitz. And could you tell us what happened there? I, I saw the sign, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free. And immediately we were separated. People had to go over 40 here, under 14 here, all young mothers with small children. They all went to the gas chamber immediately. So when it was our turn, my mother was in the middle and both of us were holding on. And this guy turned out to be Dr. Mengele, asked, is this your mother or is this your sister? I never forgave myself. I said, it's my mother. So he told her to go to the left and I followed my mom. I never forget him telling me, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower and promptly I was taken to the other side. So when I was interviewed by this person who was a prisoner herself from Poland, she was there since 1941 and told me that while I was going to the theater, she was suffering and, and so she pulled out my earrings and I was bleeding. And I said, by the way, when will I see my mother? She pointed at a chimney and she said, she's burning there. You better talk about her in past tense. 
And my sister Magda hugged me and said, the spirit never dies. So today, I feel that it is my responsibility to tell people what happened. My mother didn't die in vain, and I, I will do that as long as I live, to tell people what happens when good people do bad things, very bad things. Yeah. That you're not born to hate, you learn it. Well, I, we hope, one of the things we hope is that the more people hear uh, your experiences and other survivors, that uh, they will realize the depth of evil that, that a person can, um, can commit. And, uh, and as you say in, uh, in your writings here, is that we all have a we all have a choice now? When you were uh, when you were in Auschwitz, um, you were with your uh, your sister um, uh, Magda the uh, the whole time. Uh, which uh, I think that one of the things that helps people uh, survive these kinds of uh, inhumane situations. And, uh, and terror and uh, death at every moment is having somebody that you care for and somebody that cares for you. And uh, I know you had uh, quite a few death experiences when you went from uh, first in Auschwitz and then the death march to Mauthausen and then uh, another death march to uh, Kungakirchen and um, could you share with us some of the, the near-death experiences that, uh, that you had? I know when I was on the death march from Mauthausen to Gunzkirchen, when you stopped, you were shot and put in a ditch. And I revisited that place myself. And I began to stop. And the girls that I shared the bread with that Dr. Mengele gave me. I really wanted to eat it, but then I did not. I climbed up and sent it, and they carried me so I wouldn't die. And when cannibalism broke out in Gunzkirchen, and I turned to God, oh, I think you want to watch the movie, The Sound of Music. It was there. I asked God to please help me. I'm not going to touch human flesh. And God told me to look down and I had grass to eat. So I can't, is not in my vocabulary because even then I chose one blade of grass over against the other. So when I go to a classroom, I can't, I put it on a board and then I take the eraser and I take the T and the apostrophe. I can, why? Because I think I can. So think about your thinking. And I think Jews are very good in self-dialogue. And they're very good at answering a question with a question. How are you? Well, how do you think I am? Uh, you know, there is a wonderful way that uh, we can communicate. I have a couple of handouts. I'll send it to you. This is one of them, the difference between a victim and a survivor. I don't have time to hate. Because if I would hate today, 
I would still be a prisoner. Uh, but forgiveness is not that I forgive you for what you did to me. It's a gift that I give to myself. Otherwise, I would be still a prisoner of the past. So I am, I am here to tell you that uh, you grew up in a family of people who learned that that suffering makes you stronger. Now, before we get to before we get to liberation, uh, Audrey, can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, how you learned about your mother and, and, and father being, uh, being Holocaust survivors? So I was born in 1954, and my um, parents had to make a certain amount of money to have me. This is a story. $60. $60, the two of us together. But my dad had suffered from TB, being an underground fighter, and it started to come back. So they... When I was about three years old, they moved to El Paso, where I grew up. So I was born in 1954. So I'm 68 now. Um, and so I, And I drove myself to the hospital because his boss didn't allow him to go without, you know, paying. Wow. Wow. But anyway, there was a little Hungarian Jewish community in El Paso. It was really a, actually a nice place to grow up. It was very diverse. And... Um, so, but it was not talked about. We, I had no idea about her history. I was in Sunday school and I was in a, around middle school and we studied the Holocaust. And I guess I don't remember the moment, but, uh, but um, I talked about it at home or my dad used to take me to Sunday school. Maybe I mentioned it to him. And then he said, oh yeah, that's your mom. And actually, the students in the Sunday school knew, <laughs> but anyway, I became aware and then I was sort of labeled that kid, you know, that had the parents. <clears throat> and at that point, did you begin to ask them questions or? I did not. It was sort of not really, it was not topic of conversation. It wasn't, really was not open for discussion. My dad was very protective of her, of my mom. And he he talked about his war experiences some. He had some book he would open up and, you know, my boy dates would come over and I'm like, oh my God, really? But uh, she never- She was never, a partisan. She never, nothing. Your father was a partisan uh, and, and your mother was a, uh, was a concentration camp survivor. And uh, so he probably had many more stories of, of heroism. And, well, uh, not really. I do remember him asking. I, I think he really, he was a very pacifist kind of a guy and very sensitive. And I asked him once, I said, did you have to hold a gun? He said, yes. I said, did you ever kill anyone? He said, I can't tell you. So that's about the most I ever talked to him about it. I just knew it was not something you talk about. All right, so now we're going to go back to uh, to Edith with liberation. You were quite, so you were liberated in, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the the day of liberation and then all the, the first, the physical rehabilitation that you had to do with all the illnesses you had? 
All I can tell you that I met one of the liberators, and I hope that you get to interview him as well. And uh, it's the 71st Infantry, and uh, he was uh, part of it. That we were, we were in Gunzkirchen, and things were very, very bad. As I told you, cannibalism broke out. And I was among the dead, I didn't know that, but there was a, a hand holding my hand. And I looked up and I was telling Oprah and she got up and said, and, and I said, all I saw was a lip. Ah, he was black. And I said, yes, I had tears. I, had, I saw him tears in the eyes and M&Ms in the hand. So if you come to my house, I give you M&Ms, my picture is on it. And how did you get to, um, you, were so, you were so ill. How did I, you get from Austria uh, back, to your, uh, back to your home in Hungary? Uh, well, it was Czechoslovakia at that time, called Kosice now, Kasha, Hungary when uh, I lived there, so my mother tongue is Hungarian. Um, Clara took over my life and uh, uh, just took me to the hospital and took me to the mountains, uh, the Tatra Mountains in Czechoslovakia. And uh, I waited every day that my mother is going to come and my father is going to show up, but they didn't. They didn't. So I ended up saying, not what, but what for? Viktor Frankl talks about meaning in life and purpose in your existence, very existential. I had nothing to live for, and I became very suicidal. And I know that God talked to me and told me, if you die, that's not the answer. You have to be for something rather than against something. And that's how I, I uh, I became Dr. Edith Eva Eger. That's how I preach about education for children to take it seriously and stay in school. There is one thing is important to say that we have genocide as we speak, but never in a history of mankind, such as scientific and systematic Annihilation of people existed when 15 educated people decided that they can put 30,000 Jews in the oven in one day. Yeah. And in your, in your own town, there were only 70 people who survived out of uh, 15,000 people. I think 70 came back to my hometown. And people would say more people came back than left because they took over the Jewish homes. If you go to Germany now, you see the name of the people who lived in that house. They don't want to run away from it. And I respect that. The largest Jewish population today is in Germany, in Europe. Well, I think, you know, part of it has to do with the, the Russian immigration of the Russian, uh, I don't mean Russian, but, you know, people from Belarus and Latvia and Estonia and, and uh, Lithuania, those people, 
Uh, some opted to go to Germany as opposed to go to Israel or coming to uh, uh, to the United States. How did you uh, How did you meet your uh, B- Bella uh, Egger, your your husband? Um, Bella came to visit his girlfriend, where I was with other survivors to get healthier, and uh, so he was. Uh, with the girlfriend and kissing and hugging. And someone told me that he is in the TB hospital, that maybe he will help me to find it and getting there. So I am, I'm 16, but that time I was 17. I was very skinny. I didn't really look very good because I had typhoid fever. and. I didn't have any hair. I had a little kerchief. And so I looked up at him. He was uh, almost 10 years older than I was with gray hair. And I asked him if he would be so kind and help me. And he hardly looked at me and said, just meet me at the station. Yes, sir. Tomorrow I was at the station. And then we, we, we got off. And the first time he looked at me and said, what did you do before the war? He was so obnoxious, the way he talked down at me. I thought to myself, you know, such a terrible Hungarian. Uh, I'm going to show him. And I said, I was a ballerina. And he said, that reminds me of a joke. It was very funny, but no. then I did a split right in front of him. I'm not dead yet. And we began to talk, and he became very interested that I knew all the Greek gods and goddesses, that somehow I had all that information. And then I was there for three weeks, and they sent me away, and we began to correspond. I think I still have some of the letters like 20 pages and that's how we got married in 1946 and the following month the doctor told me i'm pregnant so i'm happy and the doctor is wanting me to have an abortion and i got up and i said sir i want to give life and my little girl was born almost like a 10 pounds, a big girl, thank God. And that's my oldest daughter. Mary and, then, and then she came home one day. I want a sister. Everybody has a sister. I must have a sister. So we decided that if we make $60 uh, together, then I can have a second child. And so I went to the Lutheran Hospital in Baltimore in 1954. They put me in a crib, you know. That didn't happen in Europe when I had my first child. So next thing I knew, I'm in a bed and the nurse comes and I say, how long do I have to suffer? She said, you had your baby four hours ago. And I said, that's America. <laughs> Wow, wow. America, she was born, and uh, 
and it was just the most precious, wonderful experience uh, for my daughter having a sister, and uh, she really had two mommies. Now, when you were in uh, El, El Paso, uh, first in Baltimore, uh, and you didn't know any English, I know that Bella knew English because he had studied in a private uh, school in England. Uh, how did you, did you take evening classes in English, or how did you? I listened to the radio all the time. I went to school at night to learn English. Um, I, uh, I was very, very ambitious. I didn't have $6 to get off the boat. And the Red Cross gave me $6, which I paid back many, many years later because I did my doctoral work at the military hospital. Um, and uh, so that's how um, both of us were very ambitious and he became a CPA. His brother wanted him to sell chickens and I said, no, he's going to go to school. And uh, the brother was very, very unfortunately unhappy. He never liked America. He became, he became a salesman. And um, um, it, it, was, it was unfortunate because he believed that we're going to bring out the money from the eager family. That was one of the wealthiest families in Czechoslovakia, and that didn't happen. We had nothing when we arrived, but we worked and worked, and I'm still working. I don't believe in retirement at all. Which I'm better now. I'm much better now, and I want to be a good role model. That when I am in my deathbed, I'm going to be very grateful for uh, all the things that God has given me to be able to talk to you today and let you know that uh, you come from good blood. And Audrey, how old were you when John was born, your third sibling? Two and a half. Two and a half. And Two and a half. And she stood in front of my bed and said, it's time to put John in a garbage. That's how much she welcomed her brother. Which is fairly normal. Very normal. <laughs> Thank God I didn't chew her out. And, and I just, uh, just told her to tell me more. And mm -hmm. she didn't want a little brother. And uh, even today, I tell you, um, their relationship uh, could improve. Uh, did you feel that you had a Hungarian Jewish community uh, of survivors in El Paso? And did that sort of help you in terms of uh, feeling like people understand who you are and where you came from? It was almost like a self-help self -help kind of therapy group. Not only that, but I treated a couple of rabbis and uh, they trusted me uh, because the community wanted him uh, to stop teaching at the university and just commit himself totally to the temple. Um, and tell yeah. us a little bit about when you started uh, going back to uh, 
to get a uh, to get a high school degree, a college degree, and then uh, and then a PhD. I never, I never finished high school. I got a PhD, and I never finished high school. I can tell you that much. I was put in a class called English as a second language. I begged them to take me in, and they did take me in in January on probation. And I was in a class, and all, most of 99% were Mexican. And then he talked to us to write an essay. And I, I didn't know what an essay was, but he said, it's like the priest. Tell him what you're going to say, and then say it, and then tell him what you said. So I went home and I wrote an essay. Tell him what. So I put whatever I put it, and then I put it in the way I thought is what he wanted. And I got the first prize in that class. And I graduated cum laude. And what I want to tell you that I never showed up for my graduation. I had such survival guilt, and I didn't think. I deserved it. Today, I would never do something like that. I would scream from the top of my head. With that you don't have the, because guilt is a very destructive kind of way of being connected to the past. And you are a person who is living for today and in the present. Audrey, uh, do you uh, remember when your mother went back to school? Did you help her with any of her with any of her work, what was it like for you kids having your, your mother go back to school? Well, I was already in high school when she started school, like a senior. So I pretty much left the house before, while she was, she went back to school uh, when I was living in the house, but we really had separate lives uh, in terms of me going to school, she going to school and uh, you know, she was very ambitious and she, uh, at the time had divorced my dad. So she had met this group of friends and, you know, anyway, I think it was good. She enjoyed it. And then she became a, a teacher and she taught at my high school. Oh, <laughs> so that was interesting. And everyone loved her. Like of course. What was that like for you? They all loved her. I was just like, okay, I actually. It was, she taught psychology, I believe, and they, yeah. they would, you know, they just thought she was a hoot. And uh, I always invited guest speakers. I remember I taught my school transcendental meditation, mm -hmm. and I'm talking 1970, you know, that was just not existing much, but I made the class very interesting. They stood in line to get in my class. I made it very interesting. Right. But then when I left home, she went into the graduate school. I got, got a lot more serious about her PhD, but I was already in college and kind of leading my own life. And she and reunited so with my dad and they had a, you know, their thing going on. It was very nice. So people nice. tell me you went back to him. I said, no, I mm -hmm. married him as a child. The second time I was a woman, to a man. I didn't go back. We had a we had a wonderful new beginning, and the rabbi was as, as wonderful 
who actually ended up, he was my patient. And uh, I think uh, my life has been very colorful. And uh, I know I'm going to be very pleased on my deathbed and not asking what the world has given me, but what I was able to hopefully be a good role model, especially to the young people that they are the ambassadors, I call them, for peace and goodwill. So, Audrey, when you were growing up, your mother today is uh, has certainly a lot of psychological uh, theories and methods that have, you know, helped thousands of, of people. When you were growing up, uh, did you hear any of these messages? Are there any particular messages that you heard from your mother growing up that that you feel were, were part of you growing up? Well, one of the messages that I always, that I remember is, don't wait for people to come to you. Like, you need to go out and get what you need. And so I kind of live by that. Um, yeah. So. Be assertive not non-assertive or aggressive. So the other thing that's sort of humorous is that she became a therapist, my sister became a therapist. And so, uh, and I did, knew I did not want to be a therapist. I became a, a leadership coach. But while I was going through my coaching training, uh, you know, we, we talk shop more than you would ever think. <laughs> And I never really realized it until someone asked me, well, what's it like being with all these psychologists? And I was like, well, I don't know. It's sort of normal. And then I realized it's really not. <laughs> it's not common in other households. But being, being a leadership coach, you're also in a position of, of helping other people. So, totally. So your totally. It's a helping profession. It's just different. It's not yes, there. Yes, but your sister Marion is a psychologist helping people, and you're you're also helping people in a different kind of way to self-actualize. And uh, and what about your your brother John? After two girls, my son was born, and my late husband started to be so so happy because. He remembers studying about Rabbi Akiva Eger. If you go to Jerusalem, there is such a street. I know we found that in Jerusalem. So, uh, but John did not develop like my girls. He didn't sit up, he didn't walk, he didn't talk. Um, so in 1960, five doctors told me, uh, that he may go to a school, they use the word retarded. And I said, this is America, where do I get a second opinion? This is a country of second opinion. And I ended up at Johns Hopkins with a neurologist, Dr. Clark, and took my son for a week, sat me down and said, your son is not retarded. Is going to do everything everybody else does. It's going to take him longer to get there. So I want you to consider stop going to school and take your son to the cerebral palsy clinic so he can learn 
And that's what I did. I dropped out of school and my son John graduated as a top 10 student from the University of Texas. That's what survivors do. This is, I'm gonna send you this, to be a survivor and not a victim. I'm not a victim. It's not my identity. I was victimized. It's not who I am. It's what was done to me. Big difference. How beautiful. Well, you certainly have been an amazing role model, not just for, for your children, but also for, for thousands of for thousands of, uh, of other people about how, you know, how not to give up and to look for, uh, and to look for uh, alternatives to whatever problem one has. And what does John do today? Well, John is, uh, is um, very unhappy that uh, he cannot really work and the way he has been doing a lot of work for free and uh, he's not doing much of that. But I, I can tell you that uh, John goes to Washington and fights for the people who need special help. So he doesn't stop that. I, uh, I speak to John and I think he, he goes to the mayor to the town and fights for the people who need better um, ways to communicate with the better. disability disability like a disability yes. advocate right. you have three children who are all involved in in helping so that again we see what a role model you have been and also the fact you know one of the reasons that many children uh become helpers in one way or another is that they develop the heightened sense of empathy towards uh, towards the survivor parents. I see uh, Audrey shaking uh, her head here. Empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. That children of survivors have that impels them, motivates them to get into the uh, to get into the uh, into the helping uh, profession. Tell us a little bit about the um, the the psychological work you have been doing and continue to do to this very day. You've had you've really helped um, uh, people uh, in situations where at times you even have endangered your own life in doing the therapy work that that you've been doing. You know, a German woman was on her that bad and someone asked her it was in the new york times um, someone asked her why did you risk your life to save jewish lives and her answer was my father told me that was the right thing to do so in 1940 1985 i was the keynote speaker in New Zealand to 2,800 people who are called the righteous Gentiles. And that was a wonderful experience for me to thank them for not standing by 
but to know that love is not what you feel, is what you do. And I think the fathers are the role model to their children the way the father treats their mother. So that's what I tell men. Remember, children don't do what to say, they do what they see. Absolutely. You're 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 a hundred percent you're a hundred percent right. Exactly. Let me well, let me just say, Edith, um, you you have a lot of uh, a lot of important messages to give people. And I just wanted to share with the people that are listening uh, that suffering is universal, but victimhood is optional. And uh, we choose to hold on to our victimization. Uh, and so I think the message is to, to all the people that are suffering out there is that uh, you don't have to continue to be a victim. And uh, you certainly are a role model for that. You cannot be a victim without a victimizer. So victims blame and adults don't. Adults look for the solution and see not revolving, but evolving. I think that is an important message, um, not to do the same thing. And uh, I think you can do the same thing, but for maybe from a different perspective. So I, I don't have time ever to be a victim but yesterday's victims can easily become today's victimizers when you identify with the aggressor and that we call the Stockholm Syndrome. So you mentioned early on that you could not really uh, ask your mother too many, too many questions. And I'm wondering, has the dialogue about her past changed at all since she has been much more open about about her experience. And also, uh, I know that she went to Auschwitz after 35 years and um, she came back as a very different kind of person. And how did that change your relationship with her and her past? Yeah. Um, the, the big uh, change was I traveled with her to Europe and that you'll re uh, that's in her second book called uh, The Gift. Gift. It certainly is a gift, and I hope that people, uh, that people pick right. it up. There's a lot to learn right. from it. Right. I had sort of a heavy hand in this one. Um, because, and that really changed for me. This, there's a story in there about being with her in the Amsterdam um, Opera House, and uh, they had a ballet they had produced a ballet called the the uh, dancer of auschwitz or something like that and uh after it was about her uh there was a prima ballerina and then someone playing mangala and uh it was on on uh may 4th which is liberation day and they take it very seriously in the netherlands and so uh, we were in the opera house, the ballet's over, and the prima ballerina came in, uh, to the king and queen seat where we were sitting to give her the flowers, and the spotlights came on, and the entire audience stood up and just cried. 
to see her there alive and you know how much joy she radiates it created so much healing in that moment and i was just hysterically crying i was like oh my goodness this woman is you know i need to pay attention she really represents a lot of healing for a lot of people and since then i have uh done a little work actually with the gift with some uh with some resilience talks and uh especially with covid it's been a really tough time for a lot of people and there's a lot of lessons in this book that can that are transferable and um and i've used a, this is a more of a how-to book uh i think yeah. to help people you know operationalize these theories in their own lives so i've become more interested in the work and uh and how it has affected me and being more honest about that and uh, more you know just discovering more i was just really not even aware of how much her trauma um affected me and i went and studied you know and i went to the portland institute of trauma and became a you know, learn how to be a trauma therapist, you know, because I wanted to learn more about how it may inhibit me uh, in my growth. So it, it was sort of been a great opportunity for me to grow. We never quit growing, right? So absolutely. I mean, look, look at how she's growing in her 90s, you know, and it's, uh, it's amazing. It uh, is, if we can all be like that when we're 94. Uh, whew. <laughs> we hope for that. Now, have you reached out to other children of Holocaust survivors? Have you discussed with Marion how the two of you felt you've been affected by your mother being a survivor? Have you read Helen Epstein's book on children of the Holocaust to see how other children, uh, how other homes were different? Or No. Uh, really, to tell you the truth, uh, her story was not my story until fairly recently, if you can believe that. Uh, we just, we, you know, we had our, my married and kids and whatever. And, um, but that trip really changed it for me about being more curious. Uh, so we're not part of, uh, actually this year, um, I did a Yom HaShoah talk in our Jewish community and people were like, who are you? Because I just wasn't part of that wasn't part of what I was doing, and and but now I'm talking about it much more, and I'm much more comfortable with it. I wasn't quite comfortable with it, uh, and uh, yeah, so I am doing more. And some people like randomly contact me and say, you know, what was your experience like? Can I tell you mine? And and I listen. And we have very since my mother did not talk about it, it really was not part of our upbringing. And and people who especially raised in New York, you know, who had raised with a lot of uh, Holocaust survivors, their experience was very different um, than mine. And they're like, really? Yeah, we, we do this. You know, I, I don't know that many people. Are your children interested in, in their grandmother and uh, grandfather? Are they asking her questions? Did they read her book? It's interesting. My daughter just took a yoga teacher training 
and they read Man's Search for Meaning. And she came out, you know, and we were, it was just fascinating. She goes, I'm going to read the choice again. I think it will mean so much more now. Um, but, um, and my son has always been interested. He does her, some of her social media. <laughs> and so he's always been interested. But they, you know, geographically, we've been in Texas. She's been in California. They hadn't seen, they're not geographically close, so. So they don't get to see her that often. Right. My sister's children, Marianne's children, grew up closer to her physically. They grew up, oh, she grew up in LA. Yeah, San Diego. It, it sounds like in recent years, your, hmm. your mother's Holocaust experience has become much more a part of, of your own identity. Yeah. And hence, as a result of your own identity, you need to do something with it. Like the fact exactly. that, that you're giving a speech. I agree. I really feel like, you know, she's 94. There's not many of her around. And I'm feeling more called to do um, more of this work. So it's not forgotten, but also um, like, the, the whole, yes, I just feel like I need to, I don't know what it's looking like yet, but I'm being called to do, like I've been asked to be a speaker at a conference of second generation trauma. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I, I just feel like it's kind of coming to me and I'm being called to do it and I want to do it. I don't know what, it, I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I feel like I'm in a, we're unique uh, and that I've had this mother that's her story's been shared, and I and I want to be able to um, not let it die. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that your um, your mother's messages are messages that we in the second generation, third generation, and fourth generation need to continue to to bring forth so that. Uh, so that we have more humaneness in the uh, in the world. I agree totally. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Uh, Edith Eva Eager and uh, and Audrey for being with us uh, today. And uh, I think our listeners have uh, have learned a lot about overcoming trauma and. Uh, and how do we take a traumatic uh, personal experience and do something positive and constructive with it for uh, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. So thank you. Thank you.